0: Tonight I want to continue a little bit the themes of Andrea's talk last night about uh, the role of concentration in practice and then what we do with the concentrated mind. The Buddha talk, uh, told us that there are four kinds of students, four ways of progressing in practice. There are students who, for whom their practice is fast but with no pain. There are students who... A fast progression in practice but a lot of pain. There are students who are slow in practice but don't have any pain. And then there are students who are slow in practice and have a lot of pain. <laughs> Shall I do a sort of roll call where you think you are? <laughs> Most of us tend to think, I think, we're in that last category, right? Slow, lot of pain, a lot of, lot of struggle to get Uh, somewhere in practice. And I can remember being so judgmental about my practice, just, you know, not good enough. Where's the insight? Not deep enough. And I'm sure you can relate, you know, hearing Q&A in the hall, and I'm not having that experience and seeing people having these huge catharses or looking like they were so deep into practice. And not feeling that that was happening for me for for a long time in practice. So a lot of judgment and then striving and then comparing and then failing. And I think some of you know that pattern. But I must say, for me, what really made a big shift was doing longer retreats and doing this kind of practice, doing metta practice intensively, doing samatha practice intensively, really actually began to shift that as I started to taste these qualities and the direction of practice that the Buddha spoke about again and again in the suttas and to feel the impact of and the deepening of concentration and the concentrated mind. And it was such an opening to faith. I'm not a faith-based person, tend to be a little on the cynical side. Um, And just to have that connection with the lineage and the texts of descriptions from 2,600 years ago and finding my place on that map, wherever I was on that map, just was really meaningful for me. It was like hearing and practicing the teachings of the Buddha in a kind of direct way, very powerful for me. And so really in that, feeling and seeing personally how it's possible to train the mind and heart, really to shift um, the, the habit patterns of the mind, and to create these new grooves towards more stillness, more equanimity, more metta, more kindness, and to feel the direct impact of that really powerful. And so you know, for all of us, we might find have have aspects of, of that sense of not, not being on the map, but hopefully on this retreat, you know, we have given you many maps and that everyone that I've spoken to has been able to find themselves somewhere on that map and know how it can be useful for them, know how they can move forward with their practice from the training that we're doing here. Now, This training is not to be good breathers. We're not <laughs> going to give you an award for the best breath at the end of the retreat. When you go home, you will not uh, impress anyone by you know, telling them, what a great breath you had on Thursday at 10 a.m. This is not <laughs> the point of the practice. And I hate to tell you, especially this retreat, it's not even about how concentrated you got. I've been saying this to people in interviews. Because that's going to shift when the, as the retreat momentum shifts, certainly as you go home. You can't take your little uh, concentrated experience in your bag and carry it home with you, right? It's a conditioned thing. It does not last. But learning to train the mind, learning how to do this practice, and to realize that this mind actually is trainable, that you can take with you, and that's really um, important. That's the best offering we can give you is this training, so you know for yourself, and it's not about some experience in the past that you had. And this mind that's trainable And the first time I had a little glimpse of that, it was like, wow, instead of the mind being this chaotic, sort of jumbled mess of pushes and pulls and, you know, it would quieten down a little bit and then lurch out again, to see it be trained in this way, I mean, it's a, I don't know, there's some ways in which this is not a good analogy, but it's like a well-trained sheepdog. You know, they're amazing, those really intelligent dogs that can... The ones that herd sheep and respond to all these different whistles and voice commands and can do these complicated things. But now people are training them to do all kinds of amazing, you know, tricks and spins and leaps and all kinds of things. Sheepdog mind. It's not a bad thing to have, you know. It might be a little elevated from the mind we came in with. Um, Positive reinforcement, you know, that's what they say works best. We can do this. And whatever level of concentration you have achieved on this retreat, as I said, can't take that with you. But the training, I think, is invaluable. It will serve you in your future practice on retreat, and it will serve you in your daily life. And if I had to choose between you having some deep, flashy, fireworks kind of experience and really mastering this training, I'd choose the training anytime. Because the fireworks can often be a distraction, a byproduct, you know, and they're gone, right? But the training is something, the mastery that I spoke about at the beginning, out of the simplicity of this practice. And I don't know whether you realize it or not, but this is the gradual path. Um, There are other paths out there and they'll advertise themselves as this, you know, enlightenment now or, you know, the, the quick path to awakening or, you know, the latest guru going through town and here in the Bay Area, we get all of them, you know, promising all kinds of awakening. We're not that, you know, it's not flashy here. It's very simple. It's this training that you can then embody and know for yourself. Far more important than, you know, used to be the 70s archetype was the guru f- touching you with a feather or something, you know. Not, not that. That that doesn't last. That's there might be some intense experience. This is the slow, the gradual, and you could say the simple path in some ways. Though of course there's huge depth to it. I think like I shared with you. I, I keep a collection of uh, meditation cartoons, and I think I shared one the other day. You know, the gloomy zendo, the two robed figures. Well, maybe it's the same two robed figures, one leaning towards the other, the smaller one, probably the younger one, and the older one is answering what was obviously a previous question. Nothing happens next. This is it. (laughs) Can you relate to that? Like, what now? Oh, another breath. What now? Oh, walking. So it's the slow path, but there is a training that's happening here that's invaluable even if you didn't have what someone in the interview called a jhana-jamboree. <laughs> no jhana-jamboree, but he was okay with that. He was okay with that, I think, and I think that's really wise. But what we've been teaching you here is how to seclude the mind, how to seclude the attention to collect and unify the mind, and beginning today, how to open up. And this is an invaluable training. I think we've said, or maybe I said at the beginning, that many people think they're doing vipassana, but they're actually doing breath meditation. And when, but when something comes along like, oh, okay, you know, I've got a pain in my knee, I'll be with that. To get rid of it, basically, is the subtext, even though they're trying not to tell it themselves that's the reason. But then they're back to the breath. It's like breath is so central, and they're reluctant to let go of it. What you need to do as a practitioner is know how to really sustain with the breath, really care about the breath, really absorb into the breath, and then how to let it go. And we'll explore this more, you know, these last days, what it's really like to let go into um, a more open, spacious awareness. So this knowing of yourself, this felt sense, whatever degree you had of a collected and unified mind, you know that now, and you know the tools and the techniques and the conditions that support that. And again, to um, reiterate that a collected and unified mind isn't narrow or tight. Even though we talk about ekagata, one-pointedness, Sajjan Sumedho said it's the one point that includes everything. The one-pointed mind can be incredibly spacious incredibly broad. It's kind of like the difference between, say, sitting out on this bench out here and looking out at the view and trying to name all the different types of trees or every bird that flies by or the flowers or whatever that you see and that kind of moving around in detail as opposed to, and sort of zooming in on things, as opposed to just sitting back, letting the eyes relax, and you take in everything effortlessly. This is also one-pointed but it has this spacious, vast quality. So we need to know that about this factor of mind. And that this practice tends to simplicity. Summa to practice, tranquility practice. Where we want to head is to stillness and simplicity. Wherever we start, and as we keep saying, you start where you are, you find a way in, wherever that is, however that is, mind, body, breath, but and you, however you connect with the breath. I always start very large, and if the breath is interesting in a certain way, I go with that. But over a practice period or over the days of a retreat, maybe even weeks of a retreat, tending towards simplicity, tending towards stillness. And just to remember that any way that you're with the breath can concentrate, because it's kind of... Consum- it, Again, I don't want to label things that makes it seem like it's one thing and not another. But any time there's a steadiness of attention, we're concentrating. So it's not like, oh, this is a concentrating breath and this is not a concentrating breath. If we're steady with the attention, we're getting concentrated. It's just the direction that this practice goes is, as we have been saying, to stillness and simplicity of mind, of the mind that's knowing, and of the object, refining the object, so the object itself becomes simpler, more refined. And that process has to happen really naturally. We can't force it. Um, it has to be a product of the calming that's happening in mind and body. And then with the breath, we're just with the minimum amount of breath, you could say information, to keep the attention steady. This is how it goes. I was. Talking to someone, and it reminded t- today, and it reminded me. I like this imagery of our practice of like the the big rocket ship taking off. You know, the one that's going to the space station or the moon or wherever. You know, at the beginning, they, at the beginning, they're gigantic, right? And these all these ro- all these and en- What is it? Rockets are they rockets? Engines roar, boosters, boosters the big ones, bl- blaring away, and you know, it lifts off, and it's so heavy. You can. Even though I'm sure it's going fast when they show it, it seems like it's going like this, like it's like slow, 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 and all this vibration. But it gets to a certain stage, and one of those drops away, right? And then it's quieter, simpler, but it's still straining against gravity till it gets to the outer atmosphere. And then that big booster rocket, it drops away, right? And after that, you just have the little, and I don't know what the technical term is, those little ones that go, shoo you know? And all they're doing is guiding. There's some momentum of an engine, but just this subtle directing in the right way. You know, and it's not a great analogy, but the, those two first stages, they're kind of like Vitak and Vichara, right? In the beginning, you're like, oh, where's the breath? There it is. No, there it is. I was just saying, no, there. It, there's that, all that energy. Remember what that felt like the early days when we were talking about, you oh, and Vichara, i to get it. This kind of efforting. And now, I'm hoping, you've had moments where it's just like like a feather, right? Just the lightest touch is all you've needed at times to be with the breath. This is the direction the practice goes. So I'm hoping, I'm my sense is from the, everyone I've talked to, that you've all had a taste of that calm, even if it's just momentary, sometimes longer than that a sense of a deeper level of calm, perhaps than you've ever known before. I know for some people they've reported that. But the main thing is that's gone. That was yesterday or this morning or whatever. You know how to train towards that. You know the conditions. And you know what it's like to have a little bit of a taste of a mind that has these qualities that the Buddha spoke about malleable, flexible, and steady. I love these words. It's mind that's responsive. You know, it's like the sheepdog. It's, it's, it's alive and, and, and listening and, and able to do what we ask of it. It's amazing. Now, it's true that to get to that place in practice, as you know, it takes certain conditions. Your mind wasn't like this on the first day. It wouldn't have been like this if you'd gone back to your room every night and watched you know, reality TV, right? Um, I was hoping you didn't, but that is not a conducive set of conditions it needs, right? This length of time, the supportive conditions, the sangha, the practice, the instructions. But I also want to point out, is, as conditioned as it is, and it is conditioned, it may be more resilient than you think it is. We don't want to get to the my precious concentration, you know, and don't disturb my concentration, you know. That the golem. especially when you go back home, when it's like, you know, all the signs on the meditation space, quiet. I'm I'm concentrating. No, you know, you've got a family or a partner or dogs or whatever. They don't. They're not going to. So don't don't go there with it. Needs that or that is that fragile. I mean, you know, it, it does need conditions more resilient than you think. I was reminded Andrea told the story about having to go into the Halloween party. I can just imagine that at IMS. Because they really get into Halloween. There's not much happening at IMS, so they make a big deal <laughs> these kind of things. So I can imagine. And it reminded me of a time I was practicing, I think it was a six week retreat at the Forest Refuge. Um, and I was doing concentration, and my husband Guy Armstrong was teaching at the Sister Center IMS, just up the garden path there at IMS. And all of a sudden, I, one day, in the, right in the middle of the retreat, I got this note you know, you remember we're refinancing the house, refinancing the mortgage, or something? You have to come to the bank and sign all these papers. <laughs> You know, I'd been there for two or three weeks, I can't remember. and I was doing concentration practice with the breath, very, you know, subtle, refined. And I'm like, oh my God, in the middle of my retreat, this is terrible, you know, but, you know, I had to do it. He had made an appointment with the bank, so, you know, he came around and a lot of time, and even, sta- I can remember standing out, you know, with my, like, going to town, which is not much, but, you know, a jacket and a hat, I felt like, you know how nervous and conspicuous you <laughs> feel? like. Sneaking out. And he pulls up and I get in and, you know, he, he, we know each other so well and he's a meditation teacher. It's very pleasant to see him and, you know, we just chatted a little bit, nothing like We drive all the way to the bank and we get to the bank and sit down and they say, well, where's your identification? I'm like, identification? <laughs> I hadn't carried a purse or a driver's and Even Guy hadn't thought of it. I'm like, you know, I'm like, Mullah Nasruddin. Oh, that's me. Yeah. It didn't work with the bank. So we had to drive all the way back and, you know, get my ID and drive all the way back. So I'm like, oh, you know, this is even twice the kind of, you know, drama that it was going to be. But we do all that, sign the papers, drop me off. I don't know how long it took, an hour or so. And I had, you know, I had a thought, oh, this is going to really impact my retreat. But I just kind of put it aside and did my practice, and it didn't. You know, it didn't really. There might have been a little ripple here or there, but with that just putting it aside, letting it go, there was just an ability to drop back in again. So, you know, say, to say this, so it's not black or white. Yes, concentration needs conditions, but once we've trained the mind and those grooves are kind of present, perhaps more accessible, not so brittle, not so uh, unreliable as you might perhaps think. And I can remember on that retreat too, telling this teacher I was working with, you know, just describing my practice and saying, oh, yeah, and I would do this and this and then this and this and this and this. And then I'd start to get concentrated. And she's like, why are you doing all that? You know what it's like to be concentrated. Just do it. I'm like, really? <laughs> and I realized, you know, I, I'd known that state of concentration. And she said, yeah, just incline the mind to it. You remember what it's like. And I'm like, Oh, that simplifies things a lot. And it's not that it can happen every time. But again, this responsive mind can actually do that, it can just pick up where it left off. It was quite amazing to see. And again, this is when the mind has been trained. I couldn't do that now. I'd love it if I could just sit down and say, be concentrated. But, you know, out of those causes and conditions, that was possible at that time. So we have this mind that we've taken and trained. It's a little bit more responsive, a little bit more steady, perhaps a little bit more flexible. What do we do with it? As Andrea said last night and as we've said all along, we turn it towards insight. We turn it towards clear seeing. Changing objects is the classic um practices Andrea described last night, the three characteristics. But the three characteristics are not the warmest and fuzziest of things to pay attention to, right? You know, impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and, and non-solidity, not self. They're challenging to us. You know, if something unpleasant is happening. It's like, great, impermanence, it's going to go. But We like solidity, right? You know, as she was saying last night, we like this kind of sense of dependability and, you know, getting what I want and being able to control things. And the three characteristics, when we see those clearly, really undermines that. But this steadiness and this equanimity that we develop through concentration allows us to be more present for the ups and downs and the challenges that can come with really starting to open to and reflect on, understand the three characteristics. This steady mind can actually be present because they're around, you know, it's a characteristic of everything. It's like, you know, you might think, how can you not notice? Um, Because it's everywhere, but we have to penetrate, right? We have to see clearly, to stay steady with things, to really be with their changing nature. And especially at this level of insight, because you know, any person on the street, if you say asked," do things change?" They'd say, "Well, of course they do. I know that. But it's very different to know it as an insight, as a transforming insight. So we use um, the concentrated mind as a foundation for our practice, this steadiness, any kind of meditation that you might do. Need some degree of concentration. So this is always helpful. And now, again, hopefully, what you can really get a sense of is the flow of practice where at times we're really collecting and simplifying and unifying the mind, and at times really opening. And on, on, an, on another retreat, perhaps you might go through naturally phases of that. At times when it's really appropriate to steady and settle and quiet, and times to open up. We don't want to just do one or the other, but this fluidity. And to see that the jhana factors that we spoke about on your list, Vitaka Vichara, Piti Sukha, Ekagata, they also are at play in any meditation practice, even though they're called jhana factors and they form the the, um, foundation of particularly first jhana, um, any meditation practice, these qualities will be invoked. And it was so helpful to me to know this list, and especially the piti sukha, and the the sukha even perhaps more, um, the sense of contentment and happiness, how important that is in practice. You could say essential, you could say necessary. And for me, again, another big shift in practice when I started to see... It was actually important and valuable to keep my mind in a contented place, and it's not as though you can do that just by willing it or have that all the time. But just to have that as a as a direction or a value, you know, I thought it was like going to the dentist. You know, you just showed up because it was good for you and you did it, but it wasn't necessarily pleasant. Um, and to have this sense that there could actually be Contentment, and that, you know, I don't mean you know that everything's great, but just a kind of basic okayness that you're doing what you're doing and practicing in that way. And in this particular um, area of practice, when we talk about concentration and samadhi and the jhana factors, you know, questions in the hall. There is a map, it's a great map, and, you know, we've we've only given you kind of the real basics of the map. There's so much more detail to it. It's always, um, it's so common that people, say, come into interviews and describe this experience from six months ago and say, and they'll do this long, very elaborate, nuanced kind of description, and then say, and what was, so what was that? I'm like, I don't know. I don't know. Because I can't know, you know, out of a context, the only way we or you can really know what an experience is, is to track it, is to track what was happening before, and particularly what happened after. The other common question we get, again, elaborate description, all these different things, and then, is that normal? And my answer always is, yes, doesn't matter what you say, because you're having it. It means it's normal, It's maybe a small sample size, but... It's normal. (laughs) I'm saying this because we can sometimes have a a sense of, you know, looking to outside authority, validation. You know, I think Andrea talked about wanting an experience so I could go tell someone I had the experience. Again, coming back to trusting your own practice, not having to so much look to others for confirmation. So, concentration, we've been talking about so much, and how central it is. If you read the text over and over again, I think someone already said, the Buddha would say, go practice jhana, or describe someone's practice, going through the jhanas and then turning to insight. Doesn't mean that there wasn't a whole school, even at that time, they they called it, I have to say, the dry path, that just practiced insight. But there was, you know, there were people who that was their way. They just, through wisdom, through discernment, um, they practiced insight, didn't go through jhana. But the very, you know, more common description was um, through concentration. So it's woven through. That's why I, I give you this handout, just to see how many of these lists, you know, to see them all in one page. And I could have put many more on here, you know, many more lists, many more suttas, that reference the centrality of concentration. And the big one, one big one, I, know, I don't want to order them here, but the Eightfold Path, to see that right there in the Fourth Noble Truth, Eightfold Path is right concentration. And that the mindfulness, the meditation section, isn't called Samasati, right? It's called sama Samadhi. We talk about Sila Samadhi Panya when we, um, it collapse the eightfold path into the three baskets, sila, samadhi, panya, ethical conduct, the meditation section, and wisdom. It's samadhi, it's right, samadhi. And when we talk about the eightfold path, um, you know, there's a certain linearity to it, as I've listed it here, but when we talk about it in shorthand, it's sila, where it starts with wise view, samaditi. Um, but when we talk about in the shorthand, it's always, and it's interesting me, always sila samadhi panya. And again, uh, the um, Eightfold Path is often depicted as a circle, so you can say there's no real beginning. The beginning can be wise view, or it could be sila. But sila as a beginning, sila samadhi panya as a foundation. And to see that sila um, is ethical conduct, is not just, you know, be good and earn your merit badge and don't do bad things or behave or restraint. I love this list. Andrea mentioned on the first night the rewards of virtue, that through ethical conduct there's freedom from remorse, the bliss of blamelessness. And that bliss of blamelessness leads to joy, to rapture, to tranquility, happiness, then concentration. So we can start from all these different places. I love that Samadhi is the result of living ethically, living without causing harm. And what I love about being on retreat is that you, we are practicing all of the eight factors of the path. Some might be obvious to you, like the meditation section, but being on retreat or being, uh, you know, living a, a, a A life of renunciation like we're doing here is considered the best way to practice all of the factors of the Eightfold Path. And so just to to point out, you know, right view, that's uh, understanding, the Dhamma, I'll talk more about that later, right intention, uh, the movements of heart and mind towards renunciation or non-ill will and harmlessness. You know, even if you weren't doing it consciously, you were practicing that here through... um, through your actions, right speech, best form, noble silence. Right? <laughs> How much trouble did you avoid by not saying some of those things you thought this week? You know, some of you have come in and said, "My mind is so crazy." You know, the wildness of it and the judgmental nature. And you know, at times we're so full of love and compassion for everyone, and then oh, they're driving me crazy! I can't stand this anymore. What? Noble silence. <laughs> best practice sometimes. But it really is, it is a practice. It is a practice of wise speech to actually restrain from speaking. Here we're doing it for the whole retreat, but it's a great practice of right speech. And then right action. This is basically the non-harming ahimsa. We've been doing that. We took the precepts at the beginning of the retreat. We Presume and hope you've all been following them. Um, and just to see on this list how that supports your practice, your concentration. Right livelihood. This is considered to be the best form of livelihood. Monastics are meant to have the best form of livelihood. It may not feel like a job, but you've been working, right? This is work, right? I almost think like we should have one of those little, you know, clock in things at the be- at outside the hall, you know, you get your thing, you ding, you ding, you go out. You're getting up at, you know, your work starts at 5.45, it doesn't finish until 9.30 at night, perhaps longer, shorter for some of you. It's a long day. You're really working here. It's a livelihood, it's a way of life. What's your pay? What's your remu- remuneration? The blessings of practice, really this, you know, enlightening of the heart and mind. What's the product you're producing? More wisdom and compassion, highest things that you could do with a life. It reminded me as I thought of that, you know, the country Bhutan doesn't have a GNP, Gross National Product Evaluation, they have GNH, Gross National Happiness, it's true. And they actually um, design their policies to raise the GNH of the country. That's their clear intention in how they make decisions, especially about modernity. You know, they, they've been isolated for so long and yet the world is pressing in um, what they bring in. They're really trying to be as wise as they can, the GNH. So you have been c- contributing to the GNH of Spirit Rock, of your own life, of the Sangha, but our communities out in the world. So it's a great livelihood. And then the three in the mindfulness, um, I mean the samadhi basket, the meditation basket, obviously, you know, you've been doing wise effort, decreasing unwholesome states of mind, increasing wholesome ones, practicing mindfulness, practicing samadhi. But as I said, what's you know, depicted when, when we see drawings, images, of the eight-pole path, it usually is a circle. There isn't a beginning or an end. And it actually is more like a, the steering wheel. What's that called of a boat? Helm. Is it the helm? I thought there was a better word. The round thing? This is a tiller That's a steering wheel. Is it just called a steering wheel, though? <laughs> I thought there would be a nautical term for it. But anyway, <laughs> the steering wheel. It has these spokes on it. So they're all connected. They all connect at the center, and you need all of them to steer your boat, to steer your ship of practice. But that very image shows us that concentration isn't an end in and of itself. You know, when you do the list linearly, it's there at the end, but more more clearly or more accurately It's a circle, and we're always cycling through all of them, and always increasing and growing and deepening as we go around, so they're not separate, not linear. Because, as we've been saying over and over again, concentration is a means to an end. It's not the end of the path. It doesn't have a transforming quality. Even though I actually think, I mean, it does have huge benefits, you know, in increasing happiness and well-being, contentment, all of those things. But by itself, it doesn't have a liberating potential. It doesn't uproot the kalesas, the torments of mind, of greed, aversion, delusion. It does not do it. Might temporarily put them at bay, so there's a lot of happiness and well-being in the practice. But open the floodgates, hello, my old friends. And we might have a different relationship to them, and that's part of the power of this practice. As we start to trust more the contentment and the well-being from practice. We're not so interested, engaged in you know, the three kalesas and that those movements of mind. But they're not uprooted th- just through this practice. So we need to turn the concentrated mind to insight, to wisdom. And as I said, uh, there's many ways that this happens. I already talked about the classic way in Vipassana practice is noticing the three characteristics of impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and not-self. This handout will show you there are other ways of languaging that, other, other framings. The three characteristics are always included in these understandings, but just interesting to see some different languaging of this. Um, again, we could do a whole talk, sometimes we actually do on the Anapanasati Sutta, Anapana just means mindfulness of in-out breathing, um, Anapanasati. And there's a sutta that describes practicing just with the breath so that it fulfills all the four foundations of mindfulness and goes all the way to liberation. Here I've just put in the handout, it's called the 16 steps. There's uh, tetrads of, of sets of practices that we can actually do just with the breath. Of, of steadying with the breath, of deepening with the breath, calming the mind and body, and then gladdening the mind, bringing in those joyful, con- uh, um, joyful qualities of mind, concentrating the mind, and then moving into liberation, to freedom, just through the breath, just through breath practice, without opening up, that the breath, as we view it in these different ways, I think Andrea talked about, can actually do that, all the way to liberation. And then the one above that, Transcendent Dependent Origination, sometimes called Transcendent Dependent Arising, another map uh, I love. And I'll talk uh, a little more about that map. But what, again, I like to put this out for you, and you can find more in the text. There's no one way. You know, there's many maps of practice. And it means there's a flexibility there. We, you know, we can find our way Uh, and find a map that serves us or works for us at at a particular time, you know, can always change. Um, But not sort of, oh, it should look like this. The Buddha gave these very, very teachings, you know, in, in accordance to who he was teaching with and their depth of practice, years of practice. So just good to know this flexibility, but still a map that we can use still still a guidelines that we can have and as i said you know i put this out in bold the concentration always is central at this kind of turning point to wisdom to equanimity to liberation that con- all these supportive factors going through happiness joy etc and then the turning towards insight or wisdom because it said that insight goes more deeply into a concentrated mind As I said, the steady mind that can really pay attention, it's present for the information that's coming. It's able to stay with experience as it's changing, as it's challenging. So this is what we see as we open up. So did you have any sense of that today as you opened up to hearing and sensing in the body different? Do you have a sense of that steadiness of mind being able to know objects more clearly? A few you know, good enough. Yeah, you know, and it's, we're just exploring, but yeah. So just to say a little bit about part of this teaching, Transcendent Dependent Origination. It's a beautiful teaching. Bhikkhu Bodhi says, tremendously important, but only found um, a few times in the suttas. This version is from the Upanisha Sutta in the Samyutta Nikaya. Um, and why I love it is because it begins where we are. You know, a lot of these lifts begin, you know, with a quite advanced quality, like, like, like wise view or mindfulness. But this begins with suffering. But it turns, they said there's two kinds of suffering. The kind of suffering that leads to confusion and the kind of suffering that leads to search. And that means finding a path. And that's the kind of suffering that's pointed to here, the kind of suffering that we, just like the Buddha, want to find a way out, want to find a path. He had to find it for ourselves. We can tread where he trod and have the faith in the path <clears throat> that the teachings show us. And, when, and it's it's very related to dependent origination, as you can see from its title. Dependent origination is this complex teaching of 12 links, the law of uh, causality that goes from ignorance, from not understanding the Dhamma, the way things are, through all of these different factors, and we end up in suffering again, old age, sickness, death. But because we haven't Uh, eradicated the ignorance. We just go around in that circle. It's kind of the definition of samsara, of, of the unenlightened being. But this one, I always think of it kind of like fireworks. If you see dependent origination as a circle, this and suffering at the top, this takes off from suffering in one direction. It's not a circle. Kind of like fireworks going off or that rocket ship going off. That's perhaps even better. Takes off from there, from where we are. These Very recognizable qualities, suffering, and perhaps whatever, faith. But then, again, these beautiful qualities. And we've spoken about them. I won't talk much about them. Joy, rapture, tranquility, happiness, to concentration. But then, oh, and I wanted to say, um, it's dependent origination. And sometimes people think of dependent origination, the original circle, and this one, transcendent, that they're causal, like a clock, ticking around that that suffering causes faith that faith causes joy it's not does it's not like that it's they condition each other meaning they influence each other when f- suffering is like this when suffering out of suffering we we it turns to search then it conditions faith it doesn't cause faith it has to condition faith when faith is like this joy is like this so it's a conditioning rather than a causal picture. So it's a map. It's a map, again, another map of practice um, that we can use uh, and some people find incredibly helpful. And the the turning point, as I said, is, is samadhi, concentration, to this next factor Uh, knowledge and vision of things as they are, yata, bhuta, nyanadasana, knowledge and vision of things as they are. This is the turning point. In that knowledge and vision of things as they are can include the three characteristics basically of the Dhamma, of the way things are. It's coming into alignment with reality, seeing clearly all of the wisdom teachings are what we open to in yata, bhuta, nyanadasana. We start to, align ourselves with the truth. We're not resisting, we're not denying the way things are, including the three characteristics, the four noble truths, understanding, dependent origination, or um, karma. And I love this, uh, the way it's framed, knowledge and vision. It's, and it's, it's, even the word knowledge, it's not meaning, you know, you can memorize this list and you've got it. It's really, the vision part means it's beyond concepts. It's, it's, it's a, it's a, a life-shifting, understanding-shifting, turning that happens here that changes us and how we are in the world. This is insight when we start to see in this way. You can say, see through dharma eyes. We see the world and we know the world as it is, really, not through our filters and projections and likes and dislikes. I got this quote from Ajahn Mahabua, one of the Thai forest meditation masters. It's a little bit unclear, but he has a very everyday way of talking about this. But he includes the khandas, which are the aggregates, these places we tend to identify and cling to of um, body, uh, form, form, feeling, perception, um, uh, mental formations, and consciousness. Um, And I don't need to go into that, but if if you just think of mind and body and how we identify with it, he calls that the Khandas. The moment that mindfulness and wisdom have completed their duties towards the foundations of mindfulness, a nature that is extraordinary and amazing appears in all its fullness. All problems are resolved without any chance of continuation, because cause and effect between the khandas and the mind, have come to a full and lasting truce. Even though they still live together, they no longer quarrel the way they used to. Each is free in line with its truth. The word yata-bhuta-nyanadasana, knowledge and vision of things as they are, in the understanding of forest dhamma, forest teachings, means living with no mistrust between the khandas and the mind, the world and the dharma, the inside and the out. The heart and all things everywhere are no longer enemies as they used to be, and the heart can now put all things to their proper uses. So it's just a sort of invocation of the unification, you could say, the non-contention, the alignment that happens when we see clearly the way things are The seeing clearly leads naturally to the next factors of nibida and viraga disenchantment and dispassion and it's a natural letting go i like nibida is a, a classic word in the text and i love the translation disenchantment breaking the spell You know, this confusion, this projection, this sense we have of, you know, seeing through our filters and desires. Disenchantment. It used to be, in older texts, it was translated as disgust and revulsion. (laughs) Which tended to be a bit off-putting because especially as lay people were like, everything? Disgust? You know, that didn't seem very a lot of equanimity in that. But disenchantment really points to what's actually happening. And Andy Olensky, um, one of our great scholars, uh, often does a lot of work at the study center um, BCBS in Massachusetts. He said the literal meaning of this word nibida is without finding. There's a great article if you want to read more you can probably find it online. Nibida, Andy Olensky. He said there is a story, this is Andy, there is a story in the text that usefully illustrates the meaning of this most important of terms. A dog stumbles across a bone that has been exposed to the elements for many months, and is therefore bleached of any residual flesh or marrow. The dog gnaws on it for some time before he finally determines that he is not finding any satisfaction in the bone, and thus he turns away from it in disgust. It is not that the bone is intrinsically disgusting. It is rather the case that the dog's raging desire for meat will not be satisfied by the bone. He is enchanted by the prospect of gratification as he scrapes away furiously at the bone, but when he finally wakes up to the truth that the bone is empty of anything that will offer him satisfaction, he becomes disenchanted and spits it out in disgust. <laughs> so it's really shifting our relationship to the object. Not, you know, that's bad or wrong or terrible, or disgusting, but not finding I like that. Not finding that same satisfaction, that enchantment that whatever it was had. It's like giving up, you know, some ambitious project that you have or even a relationship or, you know, some way of being in the world. And you really see it, uh, it's either not working out as you thought it would. It's, it's not what you want, really. You know, you've changed. You, you're not getting the satisfaction any longer. And so there's a natural letting go. It ha- and it, it, you know, just think of all the things that you used to really like doing, right? Um, and that you don't care about anymore. You know, you could have a long list of that. I mean, I was just making fun as I thought of this. You know, remember when you were whatever age, 8 or 10 or 12, and the best thing was to come home from school and plop down and watch an hour of cartoons? <laughs> you know, would that be fun anymore? you know, Gilligan's Island, would you watch that every night? I'm probably dating myself, and thank you, America, yes, we had all of your sitcoms, Gilligan's Island, and the Jetsons, and Green Acres, and all of, every, all of them, I can sing you all the theme songs. I remember I visit, in Australia visiting my family, I've got young nieces and nephews there, getting ready, I was getting ready to go to bed at night, probably about 10, and they were getting ready to go out. It's like, That would be the last thing I would, you know, go out at 10 o'clock at night, you know? When was the last time you wanted to go to a disco? I mean, I can't think, I I don't think I ever actually went to a disco, but just that kind of, you know, you used to, maybe there's some people here who still do, but think of something else you don't now no longer want to do, you know? You don't, it would be like torture, right? A hell realm to go... To a disco, flashing lights, bell bottoms, I don't know playing. Sometimes there's a little poignancy in that letting go. It's like, oh, I used to love that. I used to love doing that, but I just don't anymore, and it doesn't serve me, and I found another place of happiness, you know, another way of living. So it's not, you know, I have to give these things up, and renunciation, sackcloth, and ashes. As Manindraji would say, you know, you talk about letting go, it's going. You just have to, you know, be there as it goes. Whatever it is, it's going. Uh, And especially tasting a higher happiness. It's like our values shift very naturally. Sometimes there's a conscious letting go and that can be helpful renunciation, but often it's really just naturally letting go to a higher happiness. And again, on these lists, there's many different ways they talk about it. Um, You know, emancipation, knowledge of destruction of the taints, um, liberating the mind, cessation, fading away. I like the... the, And they're all pointing to awakening, uh, liberation, freedom, that the Buddha talked about. I like the simple definition that Andrea gave us last night. Freedom from greed, aversion, and delusion. Not some mystical state, not some transcendent state, but just the mind that's free of greed, aversion, and delusion. And you've had a taste of that. I spoke to some of you today where you had that experience of calm, of simplicity. Nothing needing to be taken away, nothing added. Just presence, contentment, clarity, wakefulness. This is a taste of that. So I want to come towards the end of the talk by going back to the first two path factors that I mentioned at the beginning of wise view and wise intention because they can be seen at the beginning of the path. We need them to orient, to get on the path, but they're also what we bring to fulfillment at the end of the path, wise view, is all of the dharma understandings that we get through insight through practice and then wise intention are these dharma values that we align with more and more easily more and more naturally of renunciation non-ill will or harmlessness and it's interesting that they're they're framed in the negative but there's a real skillful means to that because it's always possible to re- restrain to not act you know just like the not speaking rather than why why speech is difficult right not speaking has its challenges but just that possibility of restraint but we can build them as we practice more as we deepen more into these beautiful positive expressions where renunciation leads to letting go abandoning or generosity is a positive manifestation non-ill will becomes goodwill becomes metta and harmlessness actively as compassion. And the shorthand really for our practice is developing wisdom and compassion. And this is what's important, how we are in the world, manifesting these qualities in our lives, in the world, contributing to the GNH, the Gross National Happiness. Wisdom knows the truth of things, knows suffering, the truth of suffering, and responds with compassion responds with kindness. This is the purpose of concentration and this is the purpose of our practice. I want to finish with a poem that I found um, when I was visiting uh, the Grand Tetons. There's a beautiful little museum called the Lawrence S. Rockefeller Preserve or Museum because he donated a lot of the land that became the Grand Tetons National Park And it's a poem by Terry Tempest Williams called Meditation on Phelps Lake. And it just kind of speaks to the mind that's open and receptive in these ways. And Phelps Lake, just a beautiful mountain lake up there in the Grand Tetons. A feather floats on Phelps Lake, a cradle of light rocking with the breeze. Wind speaks through pines, light animates granite. An eagle soars, its shadow crosses over us. All life is intertwined. We see the great peaks mirrored in water. Stillness, wholeness, renewal. Nature quiets the mind by engaging with an intelligence larger than our own. Reflection leads us to restoration. Mindful of different ways of being, our awareness as a species shifts. We recognize the soul of the land as our own. The path of wisdom invites us to walk with a humble heart, recognizing the dance between diversity and unity, action and restraint. The scales of nature will always seek equilibrium. A feather can tip the balance. So let's just let the words settle into silence. Thank you for your attention. <sighs> so, time now for some walking meditation, cool. Med- Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.